0: All right, friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 5, we're going to be looking at just the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 together. So last week we looked at how Abraham was justified by simply believing in God, and God counted that to Abraham as righteousness. This week we come to the stark realization that believing God's promises aren't simply a matter of choosing A over B. But that God has to do an internal work to us, indeed an external work of doing something on our behalf, but then he has to do something inside of us too. And so it's not just a matter of choosing this God over this God, but in fact, the God over all gods. And as Paul says in another letter, we have to come to grips with the fact that we are children of wrath. We are ungodly by nature because of... The nature that we have inherited from Adam when he fell in the garden and that God is on a mission to reconcile all of creation to himself and he starts to do that in the person of Jesus. And what he starts on Calvary, he will bring to completion when Jesus comes in power on the last day. And so if the sheer belief in Jesus is what I called last week the scandal of Christianity... The miracle of the Christian faith is how you and I come to believe. That's the miracle that we relish this morning, is that we even believe in Jesus. And so we're going to look at three changes that have to take place in our lives in order for us to come to that miracle of saving faith. And the first and third, I was gonna try to, I'm trying to follow the layout of the passage itself. But the first point and the third point are an external reality that has to take place, and then the second point is an internal reality that has to take place in our own hearts. So I'm gonna break that down here in a moment. But if you would uh, read with me in Romans chapter five, verses one through eleven. I don't have my copy of scripture. Could I borrow um, one of y'all's here? My Bible isn't up here. Thank you. So Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have been now justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Josie, do you mind if I keep this up here? Okay, appreciate it. So we can see from our passage that this is simply an explanation of what came in chapter four, because he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that whole chapter four is an explanation of what it means to be justified by faith, as he looked at Abraham and at David as we saw last week. It's an explanation of what that looks like, how saving faith actually saves us, resting upon the promises of God, of what God said he would do on our behalf and not what we are doing. That is, we, are, we stand justified. God declares us righteous because of what we see Jesus having accomplished in his death and in his resurrection and what he will accomplish when he comes again in glory and in power and so as christians now on this side of the cross we we still look forward to a promise yet to be revealed when jesus comes in power and that's what saving faith looks like that's why paul says that that faith is the 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 conviction of things that we don't see yet we didn't see jesus crucified on the cross we we haven't seen him yet come in glory but Paul says that's the essence of faith is that we put our faith in what God has said He will do. What He has done outside of us. Not based upon what you and I do. Not based upon our obedience like we saw last week. Not based upon our faithfulness like we saw last week. Not based upon how we can point to other people and say, well, look at that. Look at what they don't do. Look at what they do do. I, I, I don't live that kind of life. Paul says, no, that's That's not what Christianity is about. But we can put our faith on the fact that God reconciles ungodly people. People that were not seeking for him. People that didn't want to have anything to do with him, even if they grew up in church. And so we're going to be looking at these three changes here. The first change comes in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. The first change, like I said, is external to us. And it moves us, this change, is from condemnation to commendation. From condemnation to commendation. Where Jesus moves us from a position of being under God's wrath and putting coming alongside us and commending us as children of God. He says, since we have been justified by faith, faith in what God has done in Jesus, we have peace, peace with God. And this is a rich word in Scripture. If you were to look throughout it, the the the, 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 the testament of throughout the Old and the New, the testimony is, is that we are at war with God. We've been at war with Him since the Garden, and in chapter 3 of Romans, we saw that all of us, Jew and Gentile, are sinners in need of a Savior. In need of reconciliation with God. In fact, we oftentimes pick up arms and try to fight against God's ways when they conflict with our desires, don't we? Because of Jesus willingly laying down his life, we have peace with God. Let that sink in that you, a child of wrath, have now been called a child of promise. An heir of all that Jesus has done. His righteousness has now been given to you and you have peace with God. All of the striving that we see in our world, all the striving that you see in your own heart is because you are wrestling still with that peace that God offers you. You see, in order for there to be peace, something and someone has to die. Look at any war over the course of human history and something or someone had to die. For that peace to be maintained... Someone's desires have to die every day. See, if there's a peace agreement between warring countries, what has to happen? There has to be a dying to desires every day in order for that peace to be maintained. And that's why you feel that struggle in your own heart. As we'll look at in Romans chapter 7, this this battle within that we have with sin. See, until recently there were... Armed guards standing at what's called the DMZ or the demilitarization zone between North and South Korea. They, they're still, guards are still standing there, but they don't have arms anymore, they, or they don't have uh, you know rifles. They, they still have uh, physical arms, but uh, they don't stand there anymore with guns looking at each other. But in order to go from one side of South Korea to North Korea or vice versa, from North Korea to South Korea, though they have a quote-unquote peace agreement, You have to have somebody escort you across that DMZ. Tons of money is spent every day by each of those governments. Their desires have to die every day for that peace to maintain because you know that North Korea would love to take over South Korea, but they have to die to that desire. South Korea has to die to that desire to take over North Korea. There has to be some kind of death, some kind of laying down of arms, some kind of saying... I'm not going to have my way. It's the same with us in our perpetual relationship, that maintaining of peace with God. The the record of our lives is that you and I are set against God. You and I are set against God, and that doesn't mean that we take up arms against God or that we stare at the sky and start cursing Him or yelling at Him. That's not the biblical testimony. But it does mean this, that you and I set an agenda day after day, hour after hour that is inherently set against the agenda of God in our lives. And that's why we struggle in the world is because we are seeking our own agenda rather than receiving from God all that he has for us. The frustrations you feel, and I've said this multiple times in multiple sermons, the frustrations that we feel in our lives is because we are still trying to vie for the throne of our lives. To be ruler of our lives rather than saying, God, what do you have for me? What do you want from me? As opposed to say, God, I don't like what you're doing and I'll, I'll take over here. That's what it looks like to be at war with God. And so in order to have a peace maintained with God, that desire has to be, as Paul talks about, crucified. As Jesus talks about, crucified. Taking up your cross every day and following Jesus. And as uh, Cardinal Robert Sarah. This is from a book that, that Luke gifted me, or that he recommended to me. This is by Cardinal Robert Sarah. It was really helpful in explaining what Christian hope is. He says this, A believer's hope has its source in God. One can truly hope only insofar as one has ties with God and is open to his influence. What reassures us is not our own effort or our own power. Our hope is founded on the limitless goodness of God. And so we don't always have a blatant hard-heartedness towards God, but a forgetfulness because we don't know what God's will is for our lives. And I'm not talking about I'm just praying for God's will to be done. No, no, no. I'm just saying most of the problems that we see in the church, most of the infighting, I would I would barely say the majority of the infighting, if not a supermajority of the infighting within churches, is because people don't. Read their Bible. I'm convinced that what we're seeing now in our culture in North America is a failure to know God's revealed will in his word. So people are fighting over things that don't matter. There are people that are dying and going to hell and we're arguing about the most trivial matters. Because God has said, I have revealed my will to you. Do you know it? Have you read it instead of thinking that you're walking around blind? God has given the light of his word so that you can know. But too often the world is more curious about the thing that's shared on Facebook or the the article that is so salacious that they can't help but click on it. Instead of knowing what Romans five says that you've been reconciled to God. All the infighting that we're seeing is because we have failed to take God's agenda for our life seriously. To put to death the deeds of the flesh. To be at war with our sin rather than our neighbor. It's being open to God's influence, as Cardinal Sarah said. It's being open to his influence by remaining in fellowship with Jesus day in and day out. It really is that simple, y'all. It really is that simple just to... So what do you want God what does God want for your life? He wants you to sit down and read his word and know his word. So when every wind of doctrine comes along, you won't be swept aside. So when that next titillating article comes across, you won't be starting to get nervous. Day in and day out spending time with God, being open to His influence and seeing that biblical hope rests on His unlimited goodness. Not on your obedience, not on your faithfulness, not on your righteousness, and not in comparison with someone else who doesn't quote-unquote measure up. This is a beautiful picture of what Paul says as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. wish I could speak longer about that. We'll get to that in chapter 8. But this word rejoice, I want to just highlight this really quickly as it relates to this, this condemnation movement to commendation. Paul says that we rejoice in the hope of glory. The better translation for that word rejoice is actually the word boast. You can look it up. The word boast is much more appropriate than rejoice here in this passage. Paul is hitting on what what the Lord mentioned in Jeremiah chapter nine. He says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they know me. And then Paul takes that idea of boasting, talks about what he boasts in, talks about boasting in the glory of God. Well, he also talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and 12, something that you may be very familiar with where he talks about this thorn in the flesh. He says, I will boast in my sufferings. I will boast in my weakness. I will boast in my struggles because in boasting of that, then I show the magnificence of God in my life that I made it. I made it across the finish line, not because I was strong enough, but because he put my arm around him and, and gave me the strength, to go across the finish line. When we come to the end of our lives, it's not because of our faithfulness, but it's because He remains faithful when we remain faithless, like we looked at last week. Because it magnifies that God is the one who not only saves us, who but He maintains us. He, he remains with us. He keeps us under the shadow of His wing. We boast in this hope of glory because we have moved from a place of condemnation to commendation. One where Jesus comes alongside us and walks us across that DMZ, a demilitarization zone. He says, he is no longer an enemy. Wrath doesn't need to be poured out on him anymore. He is a son. He is a brother, brother. And that's what Paul is talking about in rejoicing, boasting in this hope of the glory of God. But see, it'd be really easy to talk about hope, biblical hope as though it's some kind of pie in the sky. Just, just wait till Jesus comes back. Man, I hope, I hope that this gets better. I'm just gonna have faith that this will get better. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not mystical as much as it is fueled by a longing. A longing. That's what biblical hope, as you look across the canon of scripture, and then particularly here in chapter five, biblical hope is a longing, a groaning, as it were, for something to happen outside of us, for God to redeem all of creation and so Paul is at pains to say, don't, don't think that I'm just talking about hope as though, man, I hope this suffering is over. Remember, this is the book of Romans that's written, written to Christians who are suffering under Nero. And each day they were struggling with, am I going to die today? Am I going to be burned at the stake today? Is Nero going to try to make me say that Jesus is, is not Lord and he is Lord? What, what's going to happen today? And this is the kind of letter, this is the kind of people that he's writing this letter to. And so he doesn't want them to think that their hope is just some kind of pie in the sky, something disconnected from reality. And so this is where we get to our second point, this internal change that has to take place in our lives. And it's this. This is the second point. The internal change that has to take place is that we have to have suffering shift to hope. Suffering in this life. Everyone will suffer. How you categorize that suffering is what matters in this life, you will suffer, Jesus said, suffering is transformed into hope. Where do we see that? Where do we see that? Well, you see that in verses three to five, right? He says, because he says, um, we rejoice or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. But in verse two, not only that, so he's saying it's, it's not just that we're hoping y'all, but it is this hope that's based on your current circumstances of suffering, because God has moved us from a place of hostility. He's got into our guts and he's changed us because of that reality. Because we can look back to that, that hope that's been poured out into our hearts. The love of God that's been poured out into our hearts by the power of the Spirit. As he'll go on to the in the third point we'll look at. We have hope. A lot of times hope is seen as a wish. Much like tossing a coin into a fountain and hoping that something happens. That you'll get that dream house. That you'll get that new car. That you'll get that job. But biblical hope moves inside of us. Yes, it happens outside of us, but by the power of the Spirit, it changes us from the inside. And in changing us from the inside, it has ramifications in what we do on the outside. It's not just glory that is coming, but it is a glory that is being worked out right here, right now, in your struggles with flesh and with Satan. Satan. See, Paul begins by laying the foundation here of what he's trying to build in the in the Romans' life. See, he says that he starts with suffering. And what does he say? Suffering what? Produces, it makes, it actually generates endurance. And then endurance produces character. And then character produces hope. So if you could just imagine that you have suffering right now, right here, real time. But that suffering isn't just devoid in and of itself of meaning, but God says, I'm gonna cause you to persevere as you suffer and as you suffer more and more and you persevere more and more then your character will be developed like granite and you'll be able to withstand any kind of fiery arrows that come at you and then that's what produces hope is the character the character that over time is developed through perseverance which is developed over time through enduring suffering kids I i want you later on maybe i don't know if butterflies are doing this right now or not but anytime you see a cocoon around um, I want you to think about this the, the temptation would be if you start seeing a, a butterfly coming out of its cocoon is you might want to open that cocoon and say you know I'm gonna help this butterfly get out of this cocoon have you ever seen have you ever seen a cocoon where a butterfly starting to struggle kids have you ever seen that no it's pretty it's pretty uh, harrowing you're like oh my goodness is he gonna die what, what's happening you start seeing you know this wing come out and you are you know, if you were to open that up, in fact, I've done this before, I'm speaking from experience here. I saw a cocoon, and I was like, I'm going to help this butterfly out. So I start peeling back the cocoon, and I'm really doing a good job here, not making sure I hurt him. And he comes out, and he's all deformed and weak. He doesn't have any wings. I mean, he has wings, but they're like flapping. He can't use them. So I essentially killed that butterfly. Because I didn't let the struggle persist. I didn't let the suffering and the the movement, because it's in that struggle, in that suffering, that the fluids get into that butterfly's wings, and then over time he can actually do what God created him to do. And in the same way in our own lives, if we try to to stifle or try to cut off the suffering and say, I don't want to suffer anymore. That's a good thing to actually pray, that I don't want this thorn to be in my flesh anymore. There's nothing wrong with praying against that. And yet at the same time saying, Lord, I'm going to embrace that thorn because it's in that struggle, in that suffering, that my wings get fluid, that blood begins to pulse through the parts of my life that would never be nourished had they not been suffering. That's what God wants to do in suffering in your life, friends. Instead of railing against God and saying, why me? I want you to look at suffering a little different and say, what a gift that this thorn is to me. Because in this I can boast, in this weakness. Because it's not based upon my strength, but based upon His strength. You and I must suffer. We must take up our cross and follow Him. And over time, as you struggle, as you suffer... You begin to persevere and your character gets developed and then you have biblical hope. It's true as one of my favorite uh, musicians and I put it up on my Instagram story earlier today, a song called Joy in the Journey by Michael Card. you do well to listen to it. It gets me every time. It says there's joy in the journey and that joy isn't devoid of struggle. There are potholes, there are briars, there are There are things, there are tigers and lions that are going to try to devour you and it's in that suffering that makes it all worth it. Why do people climb Mount Everest? As opposed to, hey, I'm just going to walk a really long way. No, they they look at Everest and and that's what we celebrate, that that they made it to the top. They struggled, they suffered, they, they persevered. And the person that climbs Mount Everest is much different than the person that climbs Signal Mountain in Chattanooga or You know, one of our one of our mountains here, (laughs) pick a a mountain, Mount Pisgah or Caesar's Head. Those are struggling, but somebody who climbs Mount Everest is like the guy who says, "I walked on the moon." Right? Those of you know know Brian Regan. So, I want to end this this point by just drawing attention. There's a guy named James Stockdale, and he wrote a biography, an autobiography, about his imprisonment. As a prisoner of war during Vietnam in 1965, he was shot down in Vietnam and he was in an infamous prison called the uh, Hanoi Hilton, this place where he struggled and he suffered. And in fact, his leg got broken a couple times. He was put in leg um, braces like um, to be held in place, like stocks that you would get back in the back in the day. And he was denied medical attention. And he wrote about this suffering and this struggle. And it's very instructive for us in how we look at suffering as Paul instructs us in this section. He says, he wrote this in his autobiography. Everyone has a breaking point. For most people, that point is very, very low. Which is why many people never push themselves past their comfort zone. Living demands suffering. It provides you with increased opportunity to suffer at every turn. The guys we revere are the guys that have suffered the most. And the dirty little secret is that everyone has a coward inside of them. And if you really want to be tough, I mean, if you want to be tough physically and mentally, you have to push that coward to the breaking point and then push past it every day. And you have to embrace suffering. Why? Because Paul says, Suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces the hope, the hope of the glory of God that we look forward to. So how do we suffer now? By longing for a world where righteousness dwells. By looking at our own hearts, we suffer and we struggle against sin, both our sin and those that we love. We look at the world and we're suffering. We're, we're choosing by following Jesus to look at the world and say, it needs redemption, as opposed to saying, well, it's just the way it is. No, that's that is a brand of suffering. We suffer if we take a stand for Jesus in the workplace when it would be better to just remain quiet or it'd be easier. You'd be more accepted by your coworkers if you just were quiet. You'd be more accepted if you if you went out with everyone and did as they did and talked as they talked and lived as they lived, but instead being governed by Scripture, being governed by God's revealed will is a form of suffering in our lives. And it's a suffering that God calls us to. I spent the most time on that point because I think that right now in this moment in our nation's history and in our own lives, it bears reminding us that we need, not only are we suffering in some kind of pandemic period right now, but there is more suffering coming, Christians. There is more suffering that's coming if you are going to follow Jesus because it is already not cool. And it's going to become even less cool in the years to come. And we have to make a decision now to say, I will follow Jesus, no turning back. So then the third change is in verses six through eleven. And this bears a sermon in and of itself. So I want to encourage you to do this. This is the third change that has to happen. Like I said, the first one is external. The second one is internal. This third one is also external. And this is something that God does on your behalf. He changes wrath to love. His disposition towards you is no longer wrathful. But is now one of love, as we read in our confession of sin that He has transferred you, as an enemy of God, to be His son and His daughter. Something that we need to relish and something we need to meditate on more and more. So I want to encourage you this week to read and reread and reread this paragraph over and over again until it gets into your very bones. Verses six through eleven. He changes His disposition towards you from wrath to love. Wrath to love. And we're able to go through struggle and suffering because of how much he loves us. How much he loves us. And, And the essence of the argument of this paragraph is this. If God loved you so much that he gave his life for you while you were still his enemy, how much more will he love you as his child? You catch the argument, he says, if he loved you as his enemy, while you were still his enemy, he loved you to die for you, how much more as his child will he love you? And many of us need to be reminded of that this morning, is that he loves you with an undying, unwavering love because of what his son has done on your behalf. Not because of some kind of inherent goodness within you, but because of what he's done outside of you. And now he has made you his child and he looks at you and he loves you. And so when you stumble and fall, as you will today and tomorrow and the next day, he looks at you and he loves you. Let that land on you for a little bit. Just think about this. What what do you think God is doing every time you sin? Is he waving his finger at you? He's saying, I told you so. What's wrong with you? Why'd you do that again? Was any good parent knows, any good parent, if their child falls off their bike, imagine a child falling off a bike and bloodies her knees and bloodies her hands. It would be a bad father to come and say, I told you not to ride so fast. A good father comes alongside his child and say let's get some band-aids let's let's clean that up let's take care of that how much more does your heavenly father look at you as his daughter and as his son I love you yes you messed up and you know what that's okay let's get back up on the bike I love you why am I gonna shake my finger at you and say you messed up again that's not God's disposition towards you friend When you fall off your bike, when you bloody yourself, when you make a mistake, God is not standing far off and saying, get it together. Put your own band-aids on. I am done with you. He comes alongside. Whoa, hey, there's a ball. It's a foul. He looks at you and he says, you're my child. I love you. And he cleans you up. He bandages you. And so let our reaction to our sin be one of crying out to God for help. Say, I fell down again, as opposed to said, I'll, I'll, I'll fix it, God. I'll fix it. Just give me some more time. I'll fix it. I messed up again. I, I did that again. I said that again. I'll cry out to him. Say, Dad, I need your help. Let me end by saying this. This is what Robert Farah Capon said. He said, everybody, I love the way he says this, everybody, even the worst stinker on earth is somebody for whom Christ died. What a colossal misrepresentation it is then when the church chases questionable types out of its midst with a broom. Every single one of us is ungodly, not seeking for God. And what a... Colossal misrepresentation when we see someone in our midst and say, what are they doing? Why are they messing up? Not having embraced our own fallenness, our own brokenness, and having not cried out to God for help and for mercy and for grace. So I want to end by asking you these few questions, and I I would love for you as you look at these verses again this week to ask ask yourself this and and write down your answers, because I think in writing things down, it helps you process. Do I consider myself weak and needy? Do I consider myself weak and needy? And if so, how does this work itself out in real life? In what ways do you demonstrate that weakness, that neediness in God? Do you ask for help? Do you ask for help? And if so, or if if you don't ask for help, why not? Do I ask for help, and if so, or if not, why not? Do I consider myself weak and needy? How does this work itself out in real life? Do I ask for help, and if not, why not? Because your Heavenly Father loves you, friend. He's not chiding you. He's coming alongside you in that moment of weakness. He loves you, and He wants to clean you up, and He wants to help you. Not wagging His finger. And no, we shouldn't, brothers and sisters, wag our finger at those who are struggling with sin, too. Those who are weak and those who are needy need a Savior. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life that you have given us in Jesus. Oh God, forgive us for forgetting that Christ died for the ungodly. He looks at us even now and seeks to wound our mend our wounds to bandage us up and to give us strength in our legs to get back up to ride our bike to to walk towards him and we pray father that by the power of the spirit you would remind us yet again that the love of god has been poured out into our hearts by the spirit so that we can cry out to our heavenly father for help and for healing we pray this all in jesus name, amen